Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the uh, first of a three-part series called Profiles in PSAC. Uh, next week, uh, we'll be hearing uh, from Dr. Uh, Richard Hidri about uh, Rabbi Uziel, and the following week from Rabbi Eli Fisher about the Hassan Sofer or Hassan Sofer, depending how you like to pronounce that. Um, the um, idea of this series is that uh, we're focusing on three, we could have chosen others, and maybe in the future we will, um, three figures who have been um, extremely influential uh, in, in their time uh, and down to contemporary times uh, in a variety of Jewish communities. Um, and I felt that uh, in some of these cases, we know just a little bit about these people, or we know almost a caricature uh, about these individuals. Um, and we don't really necessarily know what was driving them, what their methodology was, what their core concerns were, um, and how, and how it came to be that they were so influential in the communities uh, in which they continue to be influential to today. Um, so because of that, we're convening uh, this series to learn a bit more about them. Uh, and I'm delighted today uh, to introduce introduce uh, our speaker uh, for this afternoon or evening, depending where you're joining from or morning if you're in California, uh, Dr. Benjamin Brown. And I'll just give a very brief uh, introduction at his request so we have a lot of time to learn together today. Um, professor Brown is a professor of Jewish thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His main focus is on Orthodox Judaism and in particular uh, halakha, Hasidut, Musar, and uh, the Hashkafa of the of Haredi communities. Uh, among his books are the Chazon Ish. Um, Dr. Brown's book on the Chazon Ish is uh, over a thousand Hebrew pages. Uh, I don't know if it's been translated into English yet, but I assume it would be much, much longer in English. Um, a, a book about the Lithuanian Musar movement, uh, about the, uh, the Haredim, a guide to their beliefs and sectors, and like a ship on a stormy sea, the story of Harleen. Hasidism. So Dr. Brown, without further ado, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Um, as the, uh, the title suggests, uh, the, the main topic of this lecture will be the Hazanish's method of Sak, but some uh, biographical introduction is necessary, I believe. Uh, so uh, I'll just uh, say a few words about his, uh, his life. Uh, the Chazanish was born in uh, 1878 in Belarus, uh, what today is considered Belarus in the Jewish geography, it's often considered as a part of Lithuania. And uh, for the uh, uh, most of his life, uh, he spent studying Torah alone. Actually, he, he, was, uh, he uh, got married in quite a late uh, time in his life. His marriage was unsuccessful. Uh, he didn't take any rabbinic post, he didn't study in a yeshiva, he didn't uh, study, almost uh, never studied uh, with other people. They had some chavrusas, but no, not something uh, uh, permanent. And most of his, the time he just sat and wrote his chidushim, wrote his chidushet uh, Torah, his halachic discussions. And uh, in the entire period of his life in Lithuania, uh, after the war, they, uh, he and his wife moved to Vilna, to a suburb of Vilna. And in his entire life, until his uh, immigration to uh, Israel, uh, he wrote only four books that were barely uh, read by Talmidei Chachamim and uh, Torah scholars. Uh, for the uh, main reason, uh, the main reason of which is that uh, he actually, uh, discussed the, the, the Talmudic uh, uh, the Talmudic text in a uh, analyzed Talmudic text in a very unfashionable way. 
while in most of the literature shivas of his time, uh, the method was uh, the Brisker method and its ramifications, he studied the Gemara just uh, as the uh, medieval scholars, medieval rabbis used to, to discuss, very much attached to the Pshat, not uh, shunning from you know, analytic and conceptual abstractions, uh, doing it very uh, text-oriented uh, and uh, uh, with a kind of, of large-scale uh, perspective on the, on, on the text itself rather than uh, the depth of its, its concepts. And uh, he sat in Vilna and, and uh, in a very small apartment, uh, with, which he shared uh, with his wife and also uh, one room or half a room of which was uh, her business, uh, that a lot for her business. And uh, this is how he was supposed to, to, to remain for the rest of his life uh, until something happened. Uh, actually, he wanted to come to Eretz Israel already in 1924 but uh, his friend that had already made the Aliyah wrote to him that uh, there's no, he won't have any source of livelihood because uh, his, wife, uh, his wife's business was uh, a, um, uh, she was a um, dealer of, um, uh, of um, uh, how do you say, call that, Arigim. Uh, uh, Anyway, he, she, she, uh, her business had not, no demand in, in Eretz Israel, so, uh, so they had, didn't have any source of, of livelihood, so he stayed there until one night in 1933, uh, he, uh, uh, thieves broke into their, uh, their shop and uh, stole all, 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 all the merchandise. And they, they remained without any livelihood in Vilna, in, in uh, Vilnius either. So he said to himself, if we don't have anything to live from, uh, neither here uh, nor in Eretz Israel, so better do it in Eretz Israel. And they decided to move. Uh, he came in uh, the uh, summer of 1933 without anyone knowing him, almost anyone knowing him here. But the uh, uh, most important rabbi of Vilna wrote to Rav Kook, uh, here in Eretz Israel, telling him that the very, very uh, important, the very important scholar, Talmudic scholar, is coming, and if he can, it'd be nice if he helps him uh, by buying his books. And this is what Rabbi Cook tried to do, and this was the, the, the main source of, of their living in the first years here in Eretz Israel. They lived very, I mean, they, they uh, were in very uh, in, in shortage in terms of, of money and livelihood, uh, but he kept writing his books. And here, if in the 55 years of his life in, in, in Lithuania, he wrote only four books, here it came out that uh, he wrote almost one book per year, which means that in the 20 years of his stay in Eretz Israel, he wrote about 20 books, more or less. <clears throat> all, all of them Hidushim on, on the Talmud. Uh, he didn't uh, want to go to Jerusalem, even though uh, he could be much more prominent there. Uh, he rather uh, wanted to be in the uh, new yeshuv, uh, where there are much, le much less religious struggles and things that can uh, uh, distract him. Uh, he just wanted to keep sitting, keep sitting and writing his, his chidushim. So he uh, chose Nebrak, which then, if we know Nebrak today as you know, a kind of capital of the Haredi world, then it wasn't like that at all. Uh, actually, his 
choice of living in Maybach is one of the reasons that made Maybach such an important center. And he chose Maybach when, what, when it was an, a very young colony. It was found less than uh, uh, 10 years before, uh, before his coming. And uh, he said it's a Makom Torah, it's a place of Torah because the, 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 there was one yeshiva there. But most of the population of Maybach was not Haredi, was mostly uh, religious Zionist uh, at that time. And uh, he didn't think much would change, but much did change because his books became uh, more, more, more and more dominant. And Rav Cook tried to uh, make them more uh, better known. Uh, but he was involved, more, more than that, he was involved in disputes, uh, disputes of the time, which attracted attention to him. Now, uh, if he came in 1933 and Rav Cook passed away in 1935, so Fuku really cared for him only for a very short time. And the rest was a, a, a kind of a, a gradual uh, ascent of the Chazonish to, uh, to the uh, status of, the, of a very prominent rabbi of the, of the period. And then in the first years, still in Nebuch, since 1941, and I'll say in a minute what happened in 1941, in, in 1941, sorry, he became a, First League, I would say, Rabbi. And since 1948, uh, he became, I would say, Gdolado, the, the main uh, rabbinic personality of the generation, the main Torah authority. Uh, now, what happened in 1941 is that the Chazonish took a very uh, outstanding and uh, uh, unpopular, I would say, even uh, position on a halachic question that was quite burning at the, at the time, which is the question of the dateline. I would refer to that in a minute. Uh, because he was so, uh, his, his position was so unusual, uh, rabbis disputed with him. And if they disputed with him, they said, who is that rabbi from Nebuch who uh, so, with such self-confidence and uh, assertively uh, stands against most of the rabbis of El Sisrael and the diaspora. Uh, and he became more and more, uh, uh, involved in halachic disputes that made him more famous. In 1948, uh, there was another psak that um, actually then it was the uh, dispute on uh, the uh, uh, women's military service and then national service uh, in the young state of Israel in which really took the main position that they became the main fighter against what he called the evil decree, the gzeira of the government. And uh, uh, Thanks to this uh, involvement, he became even better known. And uh, alongside the Briskerov, Itzhak Zev Soloveitchik, but he even more uh, became the most influential leaders on Haredi politics as well. And that's why Ben Gurion wanted to meet with either of them in 1952. Eventually, he didn't meet with Briskerov. He met only with the Chazonish, a historic meeting that even uh, eternalized his, his uh, uh, the myth of the Chazonish even more. Even Ben Gurion himself later wrote to him, uh, I won't argue with you on halacha because I know you are Dolado, the, the greatest Torah authority of the generation. Uh, he passed away in 1953 at the age of 75 from a heart attack in Nebuch in Leil Shabbat in Friday night, on Friday night. And uh, uh, the more time passed, the more his figure became, I would say, a myth in the Haredi society. Today, uh, even Hasidim 
to great to great extent take him as the the founder of the yeshiva world in Eretz Israel. He was not the the founder. He was not certainly not the only founder, but the uh, uh, the leader of the generation in this these critical years of the foundation of the state of Israel. And uh, they take him as uh, a, a kind of tzaddik, not only as, as, as a halachic leader, but a halachic authority, but also a kind of spiritual leader of the entire Haredi community of Eretz uh, Israel. So that's about uh, the, his, his wife, by the way, that was uh, much older than him, uh, passed away a, a few years after him. So she survived him and uh, uh, lived even more. Uh, than him, much more than him, actually. Um, he didn't have any children, so he didn't have any heirs, uh, but he had a, a, more than one brothers, brother, brother, brothers-in-law uh, from whom he had nephews, of course, sisters and brothers-in-law, uh, from whom he had the, uh, nephews and he fostered those nephews. Some of them are really important figures became important figures. His brother-in-law, the Stipe, became a prominent leader after his passing. Uh, his, his nephew, Khan Kanievsky, is the prominent leader of the, the literary sector uh, today. And the Greniman family as well, also very important rabbis, quite, I would say, uh, controversial rabbis uh, in the Haredi community of uh, 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 more recent uh, decades. So, uh, this is about biography. Uh, any questions so far? Um, do you want to ask something about biography? You mentioned his wife that she was older. She pre and she um, he predeceased her, but it was an unsuccessful marriage. What what do we have to say to that? What kind of evidence did we learn mm -hmm. about? That? Yes, I. Uh, they didn't divorce. No, actually, he uh, discovered that she's much older than him, only uh, short before the, the wedding. So uh, his parents uh, really exerted pressure that they uh, uh, cancel the marriage, the, the wedding, but he refused. He didn't want to uh, cause disgrace to, uh, to, to, to a, Jewish, a Jewish daughter, so a Jewish woman. And so he married her. And she had, uh, she, on one hand, she did uh, uh, make sure that he sits and study. Uh, and that was the most important thing for him, but uh, she was of a very different temp temper than his, very uh, talkative and sometimes really even uh, verbally violent, I would say, to some degree, very rough person. Uh, later on, she also, um, actually, she probably was a little less stable, not really mentally ill, but uh, less stable in, in, in the mental in mental terms, and he wanted to divorce her, and probably, according to at least one testimony, he suggested divorce, and they didn't have children, so he had a halachic reason as well, and he, he did want children, he loved children. Uh, so he suggested her to divorce uh, after 10 years of marriage, according to the, the, the halacha, and she refused, she even, when that testimony, she even uh, threatened that she would commit suicide, so he gave up and actually lived with her with, without much harmony for the rest of their lives. Do we know her name? Ah, yes, yeah, true, Basha. Basha. Basha, Batya in Hebrew. And um, uh, th like the, these testimonies, these accounts, these are first-hand accounts of people who met her, who knew her? Uh, yes, it's a relative of hers. It's uh, Chaim Kulitz, the, the author. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 
Um, so now uh, to the main question, the, his halachic rulings. Now, as I said, the Chazunish uh, used to write like the Rishonim, uh, like the medieval scholars, uh, medieval Talmudists, uh, which didn't only mean that he didn't go to, first of all, it means that he didn't go to conceptual abstractions, as I said, but it's not only that. When he wrote a halachic uh, uh, discussion, when he wrote an, a halachic discourse, a chidush, uh, he wrote it as if he is about to write a psak. I mean, even when it, it, there wasn't a halachic question uh, uh, facing him, he treated it, his methodology was that to treat the, the, any Talmudic question, any halachic question standing before him, not as a theoretical one, but as an actual one, as something, a practical question to be solved. This is already quite different from the method of most of the Achoinim, of most of the uh, uh, modern era scholars. Uh, and therefore his chidushim are often taken as sources of psak and people, uh, rabbis uh, uh, decide, give rulings, halachic rulings according to them. Not only that, but his uh, Talmudim, his disciples follow those, follows those halachic rulings as, you know, their halachic path and uh, even his not unwritten halachic uh, conduct, uh, which is taken as anagota chazonish, uh, they they became a kind of code for the uh, circle known in Nebak as the Chazonishnikim, as the followers of the Chazonish. Uh, so it, it really really became much more than just Talmudic discussions. It's it, it's it's a, a a kind of a discussion for for a bottom line conclusions, and uh, he took that very seriously. Uh, but beyond and above that, he also really wrote things for and regarding practical questions that stood on his table uh, in order to be resolved. Now, as I said, when he was uh, still in Lithuania, he wasn't much involved in public affairs, but when he came to Eretz Israel, uh, he became more, invo more involved first in Nebak, then later in much more countrywide and even worldwide uh, 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 questions, halachic questions. Uh, one of the first uh, questions he, he, he uh, he uh, coped with was the question of uh, the Shemitah, of the, the sabbatical year, and especially the Etera Mechira, uh, the permission uh, to, sail, to sell, as often attributed to, the, to Rav Kook, the Rabbi Kook, but it's not his, as it was developed uh, uh, in the modern era. Uh, what actually happened there, I guess most of you know about that, but uh, the new Jewish colonies that were founded by Zionist, new, the Zionist, uh, uh, first by the Chovei in 1882, and then later the uh, later Aliot, uh, had had a serious problem with the uh, sabbatical year with the Shemitah. Uh, they, they were quite young uh, settlements, the uh, uh, based on agriculture and stopping the, the work for a whole year was actually uh, kind of, I mean, uh, I, uh, gave them no chance to survive. Uh, left them no, no chance to survive. They not only they had to uh, to cultivate the lands for themselves, but also they had commitments. For example, some of their commitments were to send wine to uh, France to the Baron Rothschild uh, because he wanted to, uh, that his colonies will also su supply wine to the Jews of France. 
Uh, but not only that, they really had problem problems with really uh, uh, they can't sell the the uh, uh, the agricultural pro products, and they didn't have what to do. They couldn't live for, from anything actually. Not they. That's what that was their, their only source of living. So uh, three rabbis from Lithuania found this solution of really sell, selling the land to an Arab, to uh, a non-Jew. And by that, uh, and, and, and the Jews of the agricultural settlements would work there as kind of uh, uh, workers hired by uh, the Arab or by anyone else, not, not on their own land. And that is, that is allowed. And in such a kind of a legal fiction, uh, also the fruit and the vegetables will not be considered as sanctified uh, by the uh, holiness of, of the uh, uh, seventh year of the sabbatical year. And therefore you can sell them, you can export them, you can do anything uh, like ordinary fruit and vegetables. Uh, Rav Kook was the one who really uh, founded this uh, Psak uh, much more systematically. First of all, he wrote the most extensive discussion about it in his introduction to Shabbat Haaretz, to his main book about uh, the sabbatical year. Uh, a book, you know, is always something that has more uh, uh, greater effort, greater impact in the Lachic library. Uh, but not only that, he became a chief rabbi, and once in seven years, he, he made it automatically, you know, uh, until recently it was done by the, the chief rabbinate, uh, a kind of procedure of selling all the lands of, uh, of Eretz Yisrael to an Arab in this uh, way, exempting them from the uh, duties of Shvit, of Shmita. Now, when the Chazonish came here, uh, he uh, wasn't satisfied with this arrangement. Most of the Jews in that time, the vast majority of the Jews, the Orthodox Jews of that time, uh, accepted this solution. There was no other, other choice and the Cook's authority was accepted by most of the uh, uh, Torah abiding Jews. So they, they accepted it, but the Chazonish was very dissatisfied with it. Now, the Chazonish on the whole didn't like uh, halachic bypasses. Uh, I, this is not my phrasing, it's uh, I, when I worked on my thesis, I, I met with a very interesting Jew who uh, was a, a Talmud of the Chazanish, a disciple of the Chazanish, studied with him, Professor Tzvi Uda, and he passed away a few years ago. And he told me that he, he really characterized the Chazanish by that. He said, he did, it's not only that he didn't like halachic bypasses, but also the bypasses that did exist, he accepted them because uh, they were part of the halacha. But he said, if the, it was if it was up to the Chazonish in the Middle Ages, suppose he lived in the Middle Ages, he wouldn't acknowledge uh, all the other uh, bypasses as well, such as uh, the Eteriska uh, uh, and uh, selling the uh, business to a Goy for Shabbat and things like that, Goy for Shabbat, all those legal fictions, he didn't like them. He didn't like things like that. And he didn't like also the Eter Mechira, uh, the permission to sell. And uh, in contrast to that, he wrote his halachic uh, rulings regarding Shvit, where he tried to be as lenient as he can regarding the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, scope and the uh, uh, content of the uh, prohibitions of Shemitah, but not uh, by any means didn't allow an overall exemption from all of them. He tried to be lenient 
on the particular level, but he didn't, he, he completely negated an overall exemption uh, of the, the entire mitzvah of Shemitah. Now, he had a few uh, uh, criticisms against the Heter uh, Machira, and uh, he summarized them, not all of them. Uh, he said that, uh, yes, that, that there are three problem, main problems in Heter Machira. It's uh, not his analysis, but uh, to summarize it. First of all, is that he says, it's, it, it doesn't really, it's not, it's not, it doesn't work, it's, it, it's void. It doesn't, uh, the, the, sale, the sale is void because it's fictitious and not only fictitious, but also it's also, it, it's in prohibition because there is a prohibition to sell the lands of Eretz Israel to a non-Jew. So first of all, it's prohibited. Second, once it's done, it's fictitious, so it doesn't work, so it doesn't really do the, uh, the uh, uh, it doesn't bring the effect that you want to, to, to have. Uh, and third, that it's it, it doesn't all, even even if if it's done, it doesn't uh, neutralize or it doesn't negate the sanctity of shemitah uh, from uh, from the fruits and vegetables, and therefore uh, it involves other prohibitions as well. So he summarizes his opinion uh, quite not not all of it, but uh, uh, quite succinctly in a, a letter from 1952. Uh, where he writes, and I read the, the English translation, the sale of the entire land to an Arab, uh, this is source number one in your handouts, the sale of the entire land to an Arab is null and void, and is incomparable to the sale of Hametz. Some other Alachic authorities said, we do the same thing with Hametz, we do the same thing with other problems in which we solve the Alachic problem by selling the object to a non-Jew. He said it's incomparable. Uh, those fruits and vegetables that were picked during the sabbatical year are exempt from tithe. Exempt from tithe, masot, means that they still have the sanctity of fruit because uh, they can uh, only be exempt from tithe, tithe when they have the sanctity of fruit, even if they're sold for three reasons. A, because they were sold by an agent, shaliach, and there, there is no agency for a transgression. If you send an agent to, to commit a transgression, the agency is void. So if the chief rabbinate takes this agency, it's void and nothing is done. Because it was not given, B, because not, it was not given the, to be in the tabu. The tabu is in the Turkish and then it is, even today it's called the tabu in Israel. It's the land registry office. If you don't register a land in the, in the, the, the tabu, it's legally uh, uh, un, uh, uh, un, invalid. So, and if the Arab would sue to uphold the sale, they would say to him, those who sold the land, this is your law, without having re registered the, the land in the tabu, one doesn't acquire it. So it's all fictitious uh, when it's not uh, legally binding. C, because in everyone's heart, they know that this is not a true acquisition. Whereas regarding the sale of Hametz, we say that in order that one not violate Bal Yirae, yes, the prohibition that the Hametz uh, will be held in Passover, one, uh, uh, one has sufficient intent to sell. Here, here one does not have such a, a presumed intent to sell, to send the land to a Gentile in order that the land lose its sanctity on the sabbatical year. To the contrary, we all prefer to keep the sabbatical year rather than sell the entire land to a Gentile. So in other words, you say in, in, in the Hametz, it's an object of, of avera, of, of transgression. So we want, would like to get rid of it. But here, when it's the land of Israel, it's a holy land, we want to sanctify it. It's an object of mitzvah. We love the land of Israel. We don't want to get rid of it. Uh, 
So uh, in his eyes, it's all fictitious. And he started this dispute in, uh, in the Shnach Shmital, the sabbatical year of 1937. And he went according to his, uh, he publicized his own uh, rulings, which were contrary to Rav Kook, uh, the, the previous chief rabbi. And he was involved in debates with rabbis who followed of, of Kook's halachic uh, uh, ruling. He didn't deter from that. But still, most of his actions in, in that, on that issue was in Nebak and the, uh, was still, Nebak was still, you know, uh, a, an agricultural colony. Some parts of it at least were uh, uh, agricultural. So uh, his voice was not much heard in other parts of the issue. Uh, but as I said, he was also involved in other agricultural questions such as milking on Shabbat. He was against that as well. But in that, by the way, he was even a little more lenient than Afkuk. Afkuk was uh, absolutely against milking on Shabbat, even in some other ways, to, to, trying to change the, the ordinary method. Uh, he, he was against that anyway. Chazonish did allow to do it in some strange way of, if you milk the, the cow, but you don't use the milk itself, but uh, uh, leave it to waste, uh, that's okay. Uh, only if you use it, it's problematic. That's what he said. So at least you can have the uh, the cow uh, a, uh, relieve the cow from uh, from the pains of you know, having the milk in, uh, uh, during the, the entire day. That that could be that could could help, uh, but not use the milk itself. And another uh, other few questions that were raised by the agricultural uh, by the farmers of of that time. But the main uh, change in his status, in his, uh, in his public position, was the question of the dateline that uh, uh, was in 1941. Uh, the, uh, a few, uh, a, uh, a few, uh, not, not, a, not a few, actually, a few hundreds of Yeshiva Bokharim uh, managed to, uh, to escape uh, Lithuania from the Nazi occupation in, uh, in 1941. It was in initially, most of you know it as the uh, uh, escape of the Mir Yeshiva. Uh, Mir, most of them were from Mir, that's true, but uh, there were also uh, students of other Yeshivot and other Torah uh, scholars, Torah Talmudic, uh, important rabbis that uh, escaped uh, with that uh, group. And they first, uh, re they, they managed to to flee thanks to the initiative of uh, a few, few Jewish uh, uh, um, activists, most important of them is Zach Varhaftig, but mostly thanks to the help of the Japanese consul in Vilnius, uh, Mr. Sujihara, a real hero that helped them with the fake, uh, uh, fake passports. And so their first stop was uh, Japan, and they settled in this Japanese, Japan, an ally of the Nazis, but they, Japan hosted them until they uh, moved to China, which was safer. And they, they settled, and settled, didn't settle. They, uh, their first stop was in the Japanese city of Kobe. And now here they had to face the question of when uh, to celebrate the uh, Shabbat and the Chagim, uh, because there was a halachic problem of the dateline. As you know, uh, the international dateline date passes in the, in the international dateline is a convention only from 19th century. Uh, the international dateline passes in the Pacific, but and since uh, because because of that, if you 
past the international dateline, you started counting Sunday, Monday, etc. from that dateline and on. But uh, there was a question, where does the uh, halachic dateline passes? Because according to some opinion, uh, opinions, uh, the halachic dateline passes in China, which means that uh, if you were in Japan, Eastern to China, you still have to count the days not according to Asia, but according to America. Uh, it's as if, as if you didn't cross the Pacific, Japan still belongs to America, only from some line uh, uh, in the area of Shanghai and on, uh, you start the new days, you start counting new, the, the days anew. And when it came to the question of Shabbat, they tried to keep two days, Lechumra, uh, to be on the safe side. Uh, but it was more critical when it came to Yom Kippur. They can't fast two days, it's dangerous. So uh, the Yeshiva Bokhrim and their rabbis sent letters to rabbis of Eastern Europe and to rabbis of Eretz Israel. Uh, when should we celebrate the Shabbat? Uh, according to one of the opinions, uh, Yom Kippur, when should we celebrate, sorry, Yom Kippur? Uh, Yom Kippur should be on uh, Wednesday. And according to the other opinion, uh, it should it ought to be on Thursday, which means if if you take the opinion that uh, uh, that, that Japan is uh, like the like most of the Pacific and like America uh, is uh, backward one day you have to uh, you have to keep it in on on Wednesday and if you think that Japan is a part of Asia in halachic terms you have to keep it on uh, Thursday and this is a Quite complex Lachi question. Not many rabbis dealt with that before. Uh, so not many rabbis dealt with that before. And they sent the question to rabbis of Eastern Europe, as I said, in Eretz Israel. And they made it in Eretz Israel, Rabbi Herzog convened um, a few rabbis to decide this question in Tzom Gedalia a week before Yom Kippur. And they decided, according to the opinion of most of the Rishonim, or most of the medieval scholar rabbis, uh, that. Uh, that uh, Japan is a part of Asia, and uh, therefore that uh, Yom Kippur should be kept on Wednesday. Uh, the Chazonish was also invited to this convention, but the Chazonish hated conventions, hated the uh, mass discussions. He didn't he, he, he always felt that it doesn't really bring you closer to the truth, but rather the opposite. Uh, so uh, he wrote a telegram of his, his own to the uh, yeshiva students uh, while the convention was just about to send uh, their telegram to Kobe, he wrote his telegram a few minutes before that uh, saying, and I quote uh, text number two, beloved brothers, eat on Wednesday and fast for Yom Kippur on Thursday and do not worry about anything. Do not worry about anything, meaning in this context, do not <laughs> worry about, do, do not, pay too much attention to what the other rabbis tell you. I'm telling you the truth. And this is, I think, quite, I, I would say, almost insolent in, in such a case. 23 rabbis convene together and have one opinion and are just about sending them the telegram and he just uh, takes the initiative and, and sends them the, the opposite opinion and say, say it very decisively and expresses it very decisively. Uh, it's it's not it's quite I mean uh, exceptional in, in the rabbinic culture, but he did that and he was quite bold in doing so. And some of the uh, they managed to infuriate some of their some of the rabbis there. And at least one of them, Rabbi Tikotchinsky, wrote an entire booklet to uh, argue with him 
on this question. And the argument uh, continued uh, in the years later, even today, the argument is still, the debate is still on in the rabbinic world, but uh, eventually the Bochumim uh, there in, uh, in Japan, uh, most of them uh, accepted the, the majority's ruling. Uh, a minority, nobody heard about what Chazanish there, but they uh, were convinced by his halachic arguments and kept the uh, Chazanish's ruling. And a very, very small minority, uh, including probably Rabban Kotler, according to some of the hearsays, uh, kept two days and fasted for two days uh, Yom Kippur, which is quite, uh, I mean, uh, unpleasant, to say the least of it. Uh, but the Chazanisha's name became much more familiar and people knew that there is some very important Talmud Chochem that has original opinions sometimes uh, there in Nebrak, which uh, should be consulted uh, on Alachi questions. Um, when the uh, Chazanish was uh, involved in, uh, uh, in the disputes about this question of uh, Alachic dateline, uh, he had to cope with the other opinions uh, that uh, 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 accepted the, uh, the uh, notion that the Alachic dateline uh, puts, puts Japan within uh, the dateline, within Asia, as a part of Asia. He not only uh, disregarded this opinion because of its, it's, it's, it's actually the textual difficulty there, because according to the Shonin, there are two criteria which, which they believe uh, bring to one and the same conclusion. One of them is that Eretz Israel should be right in the middle between the end of the East and the, the end of the West. And the end of the, the East is where the dateline starts. Now we know that it doesn't happen like that. I mean, Israel, Eretz Israel is not right in the middle between the end of Asia and the, uh, or the, the Eastern shore of, shore of Asia and the Western shore of Africa or Europe. Uh, so you have to really cope with the texts here and the Chazanish has his, his own uh, idea about that. But the other rabbis who said that Dateline uh, does include Japan as part of Asia, he considered that he disregarded this opinion not only because he thought it's, it's wrong textually, he also believed that those rabbis who adopted that opinion did so because they wanted to, uh, to suit the halachic dateline to the international dateline, which is, according to his opinion, unacceptable. The, the international dateline, a Gentile convention for 19th century, uh, does not should not play any role, any any function with with, with the halachic discussion, uh, because in the halachic discussion there was already a dateline from the the six days of creation. Uh, since there is Shabbat, uh, the, there should be an a a, a a, an answer to the question uh, whether uh, in what date, in what uh, 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 day of the week sh uh, uh, Shabbat uh, falls in Japan. Uh, so he wrote a letter to Tikotrichinsky saying that, that the notion of 12 hours to this direction and 12 hours to that to the other one is not axiomatic. The, as, as I said, 12 hours meaning that Eretz Israel is in the middle and is not, is not common among the Rishonim of blessed memory. Rather, it is only a convention among the scholars of the outside world, Gentile uh, uh, scientists. Therefore, there is no room to enforce that convention on the text of the Rishonim of blessed memory and to divert them to foreign purposes. Foreign purposes meaning to be like the rest of the world in order to have, have it comply with a secular convention. 
anyone will see that this never dawned on them in any of these matters, and no one ever disagreed with Rabbi Zrachi Alevi, his main source in that question, on the question of the start of the day. Only the non-Talmudic seculars admitted a foreign spirit into the Jewish people on this issue. So it's very staunch about this. Yes, the Lachic question should be taken out of any non-Halachic considerations, non-textual considerations. It should be purely Halachic without uh, uh, interfering, uh, without letting any non-Halachic or political cultural uh, other questions, uh, other considerations interfere in the Lachic discretion. Another important uh, uh, dispute in which the uh, Chazonish took part and there was, uh, became very famous of, and even today, is the question of halachic measurements, the shiurim. In uh, the Talmud, in uh, ancient measurements, uh, <clears throat> for example, tefach, uh, etzba, etzba, which is something like, like inch, uh, uh, Beit Kur, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, ancient measurements that today, <coughs> sorry, uh, do no longer prevail. So the question came up, how do you translate the ancient uh, measurements into modern measurements? If I go to buy a lulav or a hadas, and hadas should be of three tfachim, uh, how much is a tefach? How do I translate it to centimeters? I, I, I will measure it in centimeters in Israel. How, how should I translate the uh, tefach to centimeters? The chazonish, uh, uh, this, this question actually uh, bothered the halachic scholars already from in the, the Middle Ages and, and uh, was reawaked by the Nodabiuda in the 18th century. And the chazonish, once again, I had to cope with it when it came to Eretz Israel. In Eretz Israel, they had their own tradition based on, on the Rambam, on Maimonides. And the Chazanish was uh, quite uh, uh, unsatisfied, dissatisfied with this tradition. He said, it's not really a reliable tradition, but more than that, he said, it's not a question that tradition should be involved in. We don't have to keep the measurements of older times. Measurements should be made according to each generation and in particular, the Gdolim, the main halachic authorities of each generation. Therefore, if the Rambam, if Rambam had his own measurements, his own translation to the uh, Talmudic measurements, it doesn't apply to us. The Nodab Yehuda, which is closer to our period, Cheskelando, uh, he's the one who should be the source for uh, our times and therefore, uh, the Chazonish's measurements are much larger than, uh, uh, than the ones that uh, were accepted in, in Yerushalayim. For example, the, uh, uh, the most basic measurement that the Chazonish started from was that of etzba. Etzba is something like inch. Uh, in Jerusalem, they took uh, the etzba for two centimeters. The Chazunish decided that it has to be two and a half centimeters. But if the etzba is two and a half centimeters, then the tefach is about 10 centimeters and the ama is about uh, uh, 56 centimeters, etc., etc. It, 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 it grows, it takes all the other measurements that depend on each other, uh, makes them larger and larger. 
uh, the same goes later to the mikveh, uh, how much water should be poured into the mikveh according to those, those measurements. Everything grows more and more, and the Chazamish went with that. People came to him and said, you know, they have another minhag, another custom. As I said, they haven't had their tradition. So even if there is a dispute on the text and it's, it's not really a matter of, uh, a, a, you know, and understanding the, you can't really under, it's not a matter of, of, of textual analysis. It's a matter of how to understand, how to translate those measurements. What basis do you take for that? It's not a textual problem. So why not go to the minhag? Why not go to the custom? The Chazonish expressed his very clear opinion about customs. And here, it's not just a halachic opinion. It's even, I would say, an ideological opinion, almost theological opinion. Minhag is only a source of halacha if it is, if it is, is constituted by the rabbis. The, the people, if, if we translate what the Chazonish says, and I'll read the text in a minute, what he actually said, what he actually says is that the halacha is, is or the Torah on the whole, is taken from the books. And those who interpret the books are the rabbis. The halacha is determined in the Besmedrash, in Batei Midrash, not in the street, not in the homes. In the home, yes, there are other things that work, and it's not a pure halachic opinion. The, the real masters, so to speak, of the halacha are the rabbis of the Talmidei Chachamim, not uh, the masses, not the people from the street. And he expresses it in a very clear principled way when he wants to cope with the minhag. And he says, the main principle of minhag, the binding custom, yes, to which we attach a determinative weight in deciding that the communal practice ensures the truth and the proper conduct being assisted by the merit of the community and the merits of their forefathers, which prevents them from failing and stumbling in, in, to mistakes, is limited to the practice of the community based on the ruling of a halachic authority who is appointed over the community. For it is the community's obligation to follow the rabbi that they appointed over themselves and the communal practice manifests the ruling. Communal practice is only a source of evidence of what the rabbi said. However, the practice of the spiritual, spiritually impoverished, Dalata Am is Hebrew term, who are not punctilious with their words and their interaction, interactions and with the precise details of the commandments and their actions are all merely by rote, does not constitute a minhag to be taken as determinative and as such, and such a practice neither overrides the law nor establishes one. So minhag for him is, I would say, an inferior source of halacha. Minhag in the, in, in the pure and simple sense, plain sense of the word of something popular, is not a source of halacha. It's a source of halacha only as evidence to what the rabbis ruled, which is an important position as well. It's a part of the Chazonish theology that the, the, the wisdom of the Torah is a supernatural wisdom. And you can only uh, in, internalize this wisdom if you understand not only the text of the Torah, if you learn a lot, if you learn a lot of Torah, of Talmud, yes, you don't only internalize the texts of the Torah, but also the spirit of the Torah. And rabbis can really understand things in what he calls often the eye grip of, uh, of the heart. 
which really catches the meaning. It, it's a kind of it's a kind of textual intuition that takes the meaning of the Torah, uh, or 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 catches the meaning of the Torah even when the text is silent or not clear enough. And he took that to extremes. In that case, yes, the rabbis are those who really uh, uh, understand the Torah, and the people is not something to be taken in consideration. To, the people are those who have to obey the rabbis, not constitute, not enact the halacha. Um, when we see what he wrote about the spiritual impoverished, this is not uh, about a, uh, the uh, non-observant. This is about observant Jews who are not Talmud uh, But one of the most revolutionary uh, rulings of the Chazonish uh, relate to the non-observant Jews, which is a problem, of course, in the modern era for all rabbis. Um, here, uh, it it's uh, the uh, question is how how do you re what's the category used to describe the status of the non-observant of non-observant Jews? Uh, according to uh, desecrators of the Sabbath uh, in public, according to Talmudic law, should be taken as non-Jews. Which is impossible, halachically impossible, socially. On the other hand, if you recognize them, if you acknowledge them as as, as good Jews, you actually uh, uh, commit suicide. I mean, uh, the halacha commits suicide, and no legal system can uh, legitimize those who disobey it. Uh, no legal system whatsoever. The halacha is no different. So, in fact, the uh, rabbis found a very good kind of solution uh, where that comes from uh, Maimonides and goes back to the Talmudic sugya, Talmudic discussion, uh, saying that if you are brought up, this is what uh, Maimonides said, said uh, if you were brought up by uh, non-observant parents in a non-observant uh, environment, you are not to be blamed for being non-observant because you are anus. Anus is kind of compelled or forced to be uh, uh, non-observant. Didn't know the law. If you don't don't know the law, you can you're not responsible. And uh, the one who adopted the, this ruling with relation to the uh, modern non-observant Jews was by Jacob Ettinger of Germany, uh, who said the same about the reform and other non-observant Jews if they were brought up in a in, in a place or in a family that where uh, this is taken as kind of normative Judaism, we can't blame them for that, and they, uh, and therefore we shouldn't treat them. Of course, not treat them as goyim, as non-Jews, and accept that uh, as you. Chazunish says a very similar thing, but in a much more sweeping way and with much more interesting uh, justification. He comes to the question from another angle. Uh, his angle is the din moridin. Moridin is a law. Uh, appearing in the Talmud as well, according to which uh, the non-observed, not all the non-observed, but the, the, the rebellious Jews, Epikosim, Mechalei Shabbat and the like, uh, desecrators of Shabbat in, in public and the like, uh, should uh, be, uh, actually, the, uh, uh, it, it is, it's not only allowed, but even recommended to kill them without a trial. This law, which is, appears in the Talmud, is called Moridin. As we all know, uh, it was not uh, almost, uh, it, it was quite a dead letter uh, uh, within the Talmudic text. They didn't use it ever uh, in, in Alachic practice. 
and there are different rabbis coped with in a different way. And when the Chazunish comes to the, this law of Moridin, casting, it's called casting in. It's not, it's not that you kill them with your hands, but you have to cast them into the, in, into the pit and not help them go up. Uh, uh, it's a kind of indirect uh, uh, way to kill them. Uh, when the Chazunish goes to this sugya, he really has a conflict, internal, not a kind of moral conflict. Uh, his, his conflict is how come that the halacha, which that is so uh, strict about inflicting uh, 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 death, death penalty and has so many conditions to uh, convict a person in a, uh, in a, a transgression that has, uh, requires that death penalty and is so miserly about, uh, about uh, inflicting the death penalty, here it, it becomes so lenient about uh, letting the person's blood and, 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 and killing him without a trial even. Uh, so he makes all the interpretive efforts to diminish it. And at the end of the uh, discussion, toward the end of the discussion, he gives this very surprising text uh, that uh, is not only about this specific law, but about the entire uh, phenomenon of non-observers in, in, in the modern era. He says, it appears that the law of casting in as I said, Moedin, uh, casting in non-observant Jews into a pit, prevails only at the time when God's providence is perceivable, such as in the time that miracles were common and the heavenly voice was used and the righteous of the generations were under God's direct divine providence visible to all. The deniers then were particularly perverse as their evil inclination pulled them toward desires and lawlessness. And then the destruction of the evildoers was defense, defense, offense should be, uh, legal, which means legal, a legal precaution taken by the rabbis for the world to make everyone know that inciting the people to sin brought forth suffering, plagues, war, and hunger. It was a, 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 an extraordinary a, a sanction only because of the problems of that generation to kill them uh, on the spot. But in the time of divine concealment, this is how he characterizes the modern time. The time of divine concealment where faith has been cut off from the spiritual impoverished, once again, the same term once, the law of casting in qualifies not amending, as mending offense against the breach, but rather as an enlarging the breach because it will appear to them as an act of destruction and violence, God forbid. And since our entire purpose is to rectify the community, the law does not apply at a time when it is not operative, and we must instead return them to belief by ropes of love and bring them under the ray of light as far as we can. Now, what he does here is logically brilliant because he says, uh, in the older times, we say that if someone is in concealment, so to speak, because he didn't know that this is the Torah, he didn't know how uh, severe it is to, to disobey the Torah and the like, and therefore exempted him from responsibility for his sins, today we're all in concealment. It's not a matter of where you were brought up uh, or who, who are your parents or who was your environment. The entire world is in concealment we don't see God's providence. So we're all kind of anusim, we're all kind of compelled to be sinful uh, because we don't have the, the necessary knowledge to be responsible for our sins. So in that respect, what other rabbis took 
as a personal condition of the non-observant in some cases, he took it as an overall universal condition of all of us that live in concealment, concealment of God's providence. And therefore they're all ex exempt and we should take them as according to the Allah category, captivated children, captivated infants, like as, as if they were cap incaptivated in their uh, uh, early childhood and were brought up in non-Jewish environments. Another famous, uh, this is once again, it doesn't come, maybe you can, you can say that the kind of moral, ethical, humanistic considerations uh, went in, but the Chazunish doesn't like to, 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 to speak as if some humanistic reasons come here. He wants to be as attached as possible to the text. So for him, the problem is not the, uh, uh, the, so, uh, the conflict between Torah and morals. It's not that Torah and morality. It's a conflict within Torah itself. And every said the entire, the entire decree of, the entire uh, law of Moridin, of casting in, was a temporary law. He makes a temporary law and it worked, it was pre pre prevailed as long as it worked. And since it doesn't work anymore, it's not, it's not effective, it's obsolete. So it is, it, it is no longer in, uh, uh, in action. The same attitude that led him here to this, so to speak, tolerant approach to the non-observant made him also very suspective, suspect, suspecting, uh, suspicious uh, toward the uh, suspicious toward the uh, initiatives uh, to uh, enact a, a day of commemoration of the Holocaust. Now we know about Yom HaShoah, but uh, in the beginning, uh, after the war, there are other proposals as well. Uh, there was a suggestion, for example, to have a uh, fast day uh, on a, a, one of the days that are to be determined. Um, or another option was that, and the Chazonish opposed that, because he said, we don't have an authority to enact to no halacha. Another uh, suggestion was that the, there would be a universal shiva. All the Jews will sit shiva uh, for seven days for the, and, and mourn the, what, not, not, not as a, not as a uh, permanent enactment, but rather one time, as a one, one time initiative symbolically to sit shiva on the entire, uh, uh, on, on all the uh, uh, victims of the, the Holocaust. The Chazonish was very, very much against all those initiatives. And when they wrote to him and actually expressed the will, the desire of the public to express their agony in some alachic way, he dismissed that altogether. And one of his letters is really, very, once again, very principled. He writes, uh, and, and, and I'll call, uh, I'll, I'll read it out loud. He says, matters of alacha are based on the Torah whose foundations are in the written Torah and are explicated by the oral Torah. And even a prophet may not enact new law unless a source for it is found in Torah. Just as detracting from the law is a derivation from the Torah, a deviation from the Torah, sorrow, so as well is adding to its commandments. Based on this principle, a person who wants to mourn his murdered, murdered relatives must ask a rabbi whether he is obligated to commence seven days of mourning for the horrific suffering that we underwent or not. In cases when we are ob obligated, we don't need official decisions. Uh, if we're exempt, if we're exempt, we're obligated to follow that ex exemption for it is the Torah that exempted us. 
and obeying is better than sacrifice, obeying the exemption in this case, is better than sacrifice and uh, uh, we'll quote the, uh, the full, full, full context in a minute. Uh, and the suggestion, suggestion to convene and decide and make new law and enact and enforce a worldwide shiva to commemorate the Shoah is an act of disrespect, God forbid, of the fundamentals of the halacha and should be removed from discussion before it was raised. Similarly, establishing a permanent fast day is within the category of rabbinic command. We actually enact a new rabbinic commandment. What we currently have as practice fast days are from the time when we have a still prophecy. How can we, a generation that is best silent, dare think like this to establish laws for future generations? This suggestion implies the denial of our sins and our lowliness while we're dirty with our transgressions and iniquities, impoverished and empty of Torah learning and naked of the observance of the commandments. Let us not be presumptuous. Rather, let us investigate our ways and repent. This is our obligation, as it is says, is not this the fast that I have I've chosen, etc. And he, he implies here, he, he alludes here to the uh, text in uh, Yeshayahu in uh, Isaiah. Uh, uh, is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Uh, is it to bow, to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that, thy, that, that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked that thou, that thou cover him, and that, show, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Is this not what I do certainly prefer, God says? And he actually says that this is what, the, 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 what we should do if we want really uh, to uh, express our agony, express our uh, uh, wish to uh, commemorate the uh, uh, the deceased. In that in that principled language, he, he actually says there is no room for any new enactment, not to cool, not to the more lenient side, not on more stringent side, not to 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 make new obligations, not to take out any obligations. We are not authorized to do that in any case. And even though people here want to express their agony, the halacha is not the, 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 the medium to express people's agony. And if there is some personal agony, let the person go to Rabbi said and ask about himself, is he, if, if he or she is obligated to mourn or not. But in the national level is enacting a new halacha. No enactment of new halacha is legitimate in the eyes of the Chazunish. Um, and uh, it should be, I must mention it's it's really in his his opinion any such thing is an introduction to reform and in even other aspects which I don't have the time to elaborate here he made the same it took the same line of really opposing strictly opposing and staunchly opposing any initiative of legislation of Nualacha. The question that took the most of of the Chazonish's attention in his recent years that the subject that most uh, bothered him was uh, the draft and then later the national service. Uh, the uh, government uh, of Israel decided already in 1948 that we as a universal draft for men and women alike and uh, that uh, everyone in the, at the age of 18 will be taken to the mobilized to the army. Um, uh, as soon as the uh, Ben Goyon uh, spoke about that, 
uh, all the rabbis were against mobilizing, recruiting the uh, girls, the uh, women, uh, for many halachic reasons. Uh, most of them is uh, a danger to their modesty, but also the fact that they are not allowed to carry a gun, according to the halacha, and they're supposed to be under their parents or under their husbands and not under any other authority. Uh, this is what most of the rabbis said, and the the opposition was universal by all the rabbis, whether Haredi or already Zionist religious. Rabbi Herzog, Rabbi Uziel were very Zionist. I mean, in their worldview uh, did not accept that either. And they're in one front with all the Haredi rabbis against that. Uh, and then Ben Gurion was uh, uh, impressed by this uh, consensus and decided, okay, decided, okay so uh, only men. Uh, as we know, he did exempt a few hundreds of Bokharim uh, Shiva students, what later became more and more, uh, uh, I mean, uh, enlarged the exemption. Uh, but uh, with regard to women, he was more flexible and decided instead, instead of army, they should go to national service. There they could be sent to religious settlements and be under authority of religious educators, and uh, that can be a solution that we can, the rabbis can accept. Here, the rabbis split. The religious rabbis, the religious, Zionist religious rabbis uh, didn't really express their consent, but uh, actually they did agree to that uh, with some with silence. While the Haredi rabbis, the uh, non-Zionist rabbis, uh, oppose it very, very vehemently. Uh, they believe that it's all the same thing in different dress, and it's a kind of maneuver ma manipulating the rabbis, and, uh, 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 sending the, the young women to military service where they should be uh, checked by male doctors and be with male uh, uh, partners in the camps uh, under male commanders. Uh, it's all one and the same and just calling it a different way, a name and they opposed that as well. Chazonish was very, very uh, uh, fearful about this, uh, this possibility, wrote many letters to other rabbis, to Rabbi Herzog, to members of the Knesset, to uh, uh, whoever can, can have some influence against what he called this evil decree, and even demanded that the, uh, the Haredi uh, parties will not join a coalition uh, if this law uh, uh, will pass, uh, passes. And uh, uh, actually, uh, they obeyed him all the time, told Ben-Gurion, uh, Chazonish says this, Chazonish said that, and this is what actually evoked Ben-Gurion's curiosity, both him and Briscoe were the main Haredi leaders, and he asked her to meet with one of them, and <coughs> the Briscoe refused, and Chazonish agreed, and, and here came the famous uh, meeting in October 1952. But before that, uh, the Chazonish made a very interesting ruling re regarding this uh, uh, question. Uh, he wrote a letter to one of the Knesset members of the uh, uh, of uh, religious Zionist Knesset members, uh, uh, Shapira, uh, Moshe Chaim Shapira, uh, where he told him uh, that um, uh, his opinion is not only that, uh, that uh, the uh, woman should not uh, be drafted to the army, but also if there is a law that forces them to be drafted, to not, a, not even national service, neither army nor national service, if the law is enforced on them and makes them go to, uh, and, and forces them to go to the army, they, sh they should uh, 
they, they should resist it in any possible way, even to death. Uh, even uh, up to death. Why? Because the Chazonish made a very strange formulation here. We saw, see that. Uh, believe that it's a Gzerat Shmad. Gzerat Shmad is a, a, an evil decree that uh, is aimed at, at causing a Jew uh, to disobey the Torah. And in that case, in that case, it's Yareg one should be killed and not transgress. Uh, and he writes to Shapiro as following, it is known that uh, there exist against the prevalent uh, cultural current, modest young women under the ethos of their parents who are holy, a holy seed glaring as the sky. Their fathers are in constant enjoyment from the splendor of purity of their offspring who have neither taste nor flavor of sin. The damage to their daughters in forcing them to join the army, this is still about the army before the national service uh, proposal was uh, uh, put up. Uh, the dam damage to their daughters in forcing them to join the army in any possible way would, in the, in the present situation, cause unparalleled heartbreak for both fathers and daughters, on the one hand, and truly endanger the entire path of purity and sanctity of our precious students, precious female students, he meant, uh, who remain for us as a remnant. Uh, the feeling of my soul, look at this, you can only understand that according to what I said before. The feeling of a Torah, of, of a Talmud Chochem soul is not just a subjective feeling. The feeling is where he internalized the spirit of the Torah. It's, it expresses itself in feeling, a special feeling of, of Torah intuition. The feeling of a soul's rule, soul rules that it is a matter of Yareg die rather than transgress. And maybe this is also true from, maybe this is also true from pure halachic point of view. First of all, the feeling of my soul, and then also maybe from halachic point of view. Therefore, I'm, I'm turning to your honor, may he live, and, uh, uh, and to your precious peers, may they live, who have the capacity to invalidate this agreement with Ben Gurion and, to touch the and, and not to touch the modest uh, young women. Writing with broken heartedness and awaiting salvations, always seeking your well-being with love, Avamishael Karelitz. So uh, here too, we see that the Chazonish uh, sees any attempt to uh, violate the sanctity of the Haredi camp with non-religious considerations, non-religious values, and anything that interferes within as kind of danger, not only uh, spiritual danger, but uh, also kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, in this case, also of a uh, of uh, 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 having to do with the, the women woman's dignity, personal dignity, not only in halachic terms of um, uh, desecrating their their purity, desecrating their modesty. The Chazonish uh, met with Ben Gurion on that question in October 1952, but uh, sorry, uh, because of the, 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 the entire debate at the, uh, 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 all the time, during the first years of the, of, of the state of Israel, all the time there were uh, problems on, on, on the basis of religion and state and Bengal, that's why I wanted to meet with the Chazonish. Uh, but this meeting quite surprisingly didn't, they didn't discuss uh, the question of the uh, uh, national service for girls. Uh, they only, discussed the, the principled question of how observant non-observant Jews can live together in a secular state without really, as, uh, as it was uh, uh, 
uh, phrased by, according to one of the, the only uh, witness that uh, stood there uh, without uh, exploding from within, without Hellas exploding from within. Uh, this meeting was uh, late, later later on uh, uh, became symbolic. You know, the chief of state and the main, the, the most prominent rebel of the generation, the power of the state versus the power of the spirit uh, coming together, but actually it bore no fruit. It, it didn't have any practical fruit, uh, except the for the fact that Ben Gurion uh, became quite impressed by the Chazonish and to some degree even liked him. And uh, when the Chazonish passed away, he uh, eulogized him in the uh, uh, government uh, cabinet meeting that followed. And when he, he received the Chazonish's small book on trust and faith in Munau Bitachon, he recommended that uh, it, will be, it be taught in, in, in schools uh, throughout the country. Uh, but basically the Chazonish, uh, as I said, uh, was not only the main Torah of, and the Chazonish later on wrote to him that he wants him to uh, abolish this uh, evil decree as he called it, and Ben-Gurion answered him, a law of a sovereign people of Israel in its land is not an evil decree. Uh, yes, it's a term usually used for the Goim's uh, anti-Semitic laws. It's not an evil decree, and he of course refused. Uh, and this way, I believe that the Chazonish combined together only in the last year of his life, both halachic authority and the kind of political and ideological leadership, which both he assumed as a, a person who really was the right man in the right place in the right time uh, for really preaching the values of the Haredi community, then uh, uh, in a quite outstanding way, most of the Haredi much, were much more moderate, much more pro-Zionist in his time. Uh, and But later on, the more the Haredi society developed, he became a kind of symbolic figure uh, for really a true ideological, pure worldview, a Haredi worldview that uh, should be uh, a paragon for future generations. So uh, to uh, sum it up, uh, the Chazonish's method of Psak uh, was, if we focus on that, is similar to that of the Rishonim. He's also based mainly on Rishonim. He almost doesn't read the Chonim, the later authorities, he's based on really practical aspects of the, the Psak. He wants to neutralize the interpretation from anything that is not pure uh, text. He wants to understand the text not only by the plain meaning of the words, but also from the entire broad uh, perspective that he has on the entire Talmudic text. Uh, this understanding of the text is not only by understanding of the word, but also a kind of internalizing the spirit of the text, which is only a merit of Talmidei Chachamim, not everyone can do that. And he uh, really uh, expresses an elitist view of the Lachic authority based on the fact that only to real Torah scholars can really understand what the Torah wants from you and don't uh, uh, involve non-Alachic considerations. And therefore it's for them and not for the people to decide what the law is. Uh, this is just in really a nutshell, some characteristics, some patterns of the, the Chazonish's method of Psak. So I took a little more time than I uh, planned, but I believe that the picture now is fuller. I hope it's okay with you.
Thank you so much, Professor Brown. Um, we, if, with your permission, if we could take just a, a couple of questions, uh, those who have to leave, of course, uh, feel free, but uh, this was such a rich uh, lecture. I'm sure uh, people might have a couple of questions for you. Is that okay? Sure. Great. Over to you guys. Uh, you can just unmute and speak. Thank you very much. That was informative. Um, uh, you know, if you ask uh, a person, like, what do you call someone who completely reinterprets halacha? Um, and turns it on its head. A lot of people say a reform rabbi. But it, it, the Chazanish in scores, if not hundreds of times, does a complete reinterpretation. And I'm not, not trying to call him a reform rabbi, but how does one make that line between uh, reinterpretation, which is reform with a capital R, and the Chazanish, which is, which we say, reform with a lowercase r? It's a good question, and the Chazonish would answer you that a man, a, a Torah scholar, should be loyal to the truth of his own understanding. And uh, first of all, it's he who faces the text and hence has to be loyal to his truth. Uh, the difference between reform, yes, uh, reform movement, and uh, an unconventional or uh, 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 irregular understanding of the text, and the Chazonish will answer is the question of how much you really direct yourself to the core of the text itself without having other values and other ideologies or other considerations whatsoever interfere in your analysis. Mm -hmm. If it's in order to adapt the Torah to the time, to certain ideologies, to certain moral uh, values or the like, it's actually uh, distorting the halacha. If you're loyal to the truth, which is based on really reading the text thoroughly as it is, uh, you're uh, faithful to the halacha. And even, uh, uh, I, I don't believe that the Chazonish would say that this is a criterion, but we as bystanders can say that the fact that most of the halachic rulings of the Chazonish, such as the Shur and such as the Shemitah, such as uh, uh, the milking on Shabbat and other things that we didn't mention here, so even the, the case of the Dayton to some degree, is um, uh, to the Chunga, is to the stringent direction, uh, means that he doesn't want, maybe he has, has other uh, considerations interfering here to the stringent direction, but it doesn't want to satisfy anyone. He doesn't want to adapt the halacha to anything. He wants to, to get the truth as it is from his reading. And that's what takes him out from, or uh, uh, make, makes him uh, uh, a, I mean, it takes him out of the possibility of being considered reform or reformist to some degree. I, uh, somebody uh, sent a question in the chat before and had to leave and asked me if I would ask you the question. I'm going to reframe her question a little bit. Um, she wanted to ask about the Shemitah ruling and in particular, given the kind of extreme economic hardship, um, what what was the Chazonish? I know that he was very make kill and very specific uh, situations, but what was his plan overall uh, for how uh, the uh, agricultural industry and the, the livelihood and well-being uh, of the people involved in agriculture could sustain themselves uh, within the, the rubric of Shemitah. Of the Haredim? Ah, of the Shemitah. You refer to the Shemitah. Shemitah, yes. 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 So he believed that uh, he had a few solutions. He believed that if he allows them 
to keep uh, Shmita according to the more lenient rules. And also he did agree to have the solution of Otsar Beidin, which is a little different, but uh, uh, it's not like Eter Mechira and it, it decreases the uh, income of the uh, farmers, but still uh, enables to do that. He was for, for the Otsar Beidin. He was also for uh, some uh, keeping of, of the uh, works of uh, what he considers possible to keep the lands uh, working to some degree. And for those who didn't have work, any, any work at all, he recommended uh, to go to other vocations for one year, such as he called it uh, a year of building the country to go uh, to, uh, uh, to be builders for one year or things like that, uh, rather than agriculture. Thank you. And we have time for one more question. Um, Dr. Brown, how do you um, uh, reconcile the beauty and poetry of Sefera Emunah Bitachon and a hard line Piske Halacha? Um, reading Emunah Bitachon, you would thought that written by Bavkuk rather than Chazonish. Yes, Chazonish uh, had a special style, I agree with you. Uh, quite different from that of Kuga, but I understand why you think they're similar. Uh, the point is that the Chazonish was uh, exposed in his early age, uh, early years, to some Ascala uh, uh, literature, I believe uh, even more so in Vilna, where you know it was the center of Jewish life of all the streams and all the movements. Uh, he read popular books on science and things like that, but he probably read more than that. And uh, and I think it's not for him. It's not a matter of uh, he didn't he wouldn't consider himself as a hardliner. He would consider himself as really focusing on the text as it is, and 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 not uh, letting anything uh, taking taking after the halachic truth. And therefore, you can see something romantic and poetic even in this endeavor to reach the halachic truth. His chidushim, his halachic chidushim, are also written in a very special language, not, uh, not that flowery language of Emunah Bitachon, but still not a typical rabbinic uh, style, because he really absorbed from a few sources and integrated this into his own spe spe specific style. He was, to some degree, a kind of, you know, uh, even in the, this, this worldview of this uh, uh, theology, which I mentioned before, of internalizing the spirit of the Torah uh, is not, you know, a formalistic kind of, of theology. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost romantic to some degree, uh, because this is how he, he moved. He was a kind of lover of the Torah, even in the a, a kind of romantic sense to, to some degree. And therefore, it's not absolutely... Uh, far off from one another, his two tendencies in halacha and in theological writing. Uh, Professor Brown, I have a question from the chat here, uh, if that's okay with you. Um, why did he consider his generation one that is best silent? Mm -hmm. uh, he was a very uh, great proponent of the doctrine of the decline of, of the generations. In contrast to the modern uh, uh, philosophy of progress, he had an opposite philosophy of uh, decline of generations, of getting uh, worse and worse as time passes. And therefore he, uh, he saw his time 
uh, when you know the secularity and non-observance became even more widespread than ever, uh, in which uh, foreign ideologies were sweeping the people of Israel, uh, both Zionism, socialism, other isms, uh, and even those who were uh, uh, loyal to the Torah uh, were, according to his elitist view, were very few. The, uh, very few of them were really uh, uh, Torah scholars. He really believed. Like, he really was a proponent of the Litvish of the old Litvish. A concept of Talmudic Chomim as the elite of the society. Only very few can, re, can be considered true Talmudic Chomim, and most of them take the halacha, uh, uh, if they are at all loyal to the halacha, as something more kind of routineous. Uh, this is a very, very, uh, very miserable generation compared to what he saw as past generations in which the, the entire people of Israel was law-abiding, law-abiding, when there were such great scholars as we see uh, from the books of the past, etc., etc., he always took, and this is a typical rabbinic approach, but he was a little more, I would say, a little more far, far going with that approach than others. Uh, he saw always the glory of the past as really uh, make, makes our generation, our time, pale and miserable, spiritually impoverished, as he called that, the Latam. Thank you so much, Professor Brown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Thank your you. lecture and, and uh, your responsiveness to people's questions. Thank you all for participating. And please uh, join us next week and the week after for the continuation of our series. Good afternoon. Good night, Professor Brown. Thank you very much. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank you for uh, uh, organizing this and uh, introducing me. Thanks. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, thanks again, uh, Dr. Steinmetz and Professor Brown for this interesting first class of this uh, session. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. We continue our spring program tomorrow at 1 p.m. with a class on uh, rabbinic authority and personal autonomy in the Talmud, three case studies with Dr. Ayelet Lisbon. We hope to see you there. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Professor Brown. Uh, and thanks to uh, everyone who attended. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Have a wonderful day.